This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Summer of 1977, A North American Bicycling Odyssey. And the author is Doug Friedline, and Doug joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Doug. Hi, how are you doing? This has got a lot to do with a lot of miles on a bicycle, something that most people can't even relate to. I mean, we're talking about 9,000 miles, which is just beyond comprehension. But before we get into the details, Doug, about this incredible challenge that you put before yourself and then you completed the challenge and did it, uh, why write the book? Well, at the time after the after I completed this journey, I was filled with a lot of different emotions. I was very happy I achieved this. This is something I had planned to do for three years, and I tried to do it in 74, didn't do it, did half of it, and decided not to start with the point where I quit at that point, but to start all over and do it in its entirety. And uh, when I was done, I like I said, I was filled with a lot of uh, good, healthy emotion, and I thought I share the story with people, and I thought I could also help people or inspire people to come up with their own dreams and uh, do what it takes to make them come true. So I guess we all have sometimes their secret ambitions, secret goals that we don't even share with anybody. Maybe not even our closest friends or our spouses. We don't share, but they're there, and, and what you're saying to everyone, go for it, right? Right. I'm saying that, you know, they're there, and if you look closely, you can give uh, substance to those dreams and then start making plans and and uh, review your resources and and go ahead and, and go forward with those plans. It must have been a tremendous feeling when you finished it. Just must have been a tremendous feeling. You talk about, uh, you know, being happy for the moment, right? Right. And it's something you can look back on, and you have all your life. And it, I'm sure it inspires you to this day that I did that. Um, yeah, it sure does. I felt that, you know, if I could do that, I could do anything. And and uh, once I did complete the trip, I I hadn't considered college. I thought that was for, you know, Einstein's. And, you know, I finally became realistic about that and my resources and went ahead and was able to... Uh, attend college and got an undergrad and a graduate degree to boot. So how old were you when you first, you say in 74 you tried it and only did half of it. How old were you the first time? First time, that was just right after uh, I completed high school. Uh, barely made it, graduated. And, uh, so I you were 17, 18? 17, yeah. I was just short of uh, 18 when I did that trip. Now why did you complete only half of it? Well, I'll tell you what. First of all, I had went by myself. Originally planned to go with my friend. He enrolled in the Army at the time, and he, we had agreed, uh, in theory, to go three years later. So 
but I was just too anxious, too restless, and I wanted to um, get this trip out of the way, so to speak, because high school had not done well, and I wanted to have some success, a success in my life, so I could kind of go forward and get that out of the way and do other things with my life. That's interesting that... I mean, that's unique. You don't, you don't hear that from many young people that you didn't do well in high school, but you, you knew there was something in you that, that uh, you hadn't discovered yet. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's pretty much, you know, and um, maybe my life was a little overbalanced. And I, you know, thought, ate and dreamed bicycling, but that's the way it was. Uh, I had, uh, our family had moved from Florida to here, Pennsylvania, where I started and finished the trip, both trips, or, well, actually the second trip. The first trip, I had to come back on a bus. But uh, uh, there was a big transition from living deep south Florida and coming up here, and I kind of isolated myself, and and uh, my uh, self-esteem kind of dropped a little bit. But uh, I held, held on to bikes. Again, I interested started in Florida. Of course, it's flat there, so there's much more hills and variety up here to deal with with bicycling. And, and I enjoyed that a lot. That was one of my biggest joys uh, back during high school and junior high when we moved here in eighth grade. That was one of the joys of my life, and I wanted to, you know, build on that. So you, obviously, in 74, when you only completed half of it, that must have been a very demoralizing kind of an experience. Oh, it was very uh, demoralizing, and, um, you know, it kind of validated all the bad feelings at school, and I, you know, to one thing I did like, and it kind of, I, I, I kind of failed in that area. The one thing I did like, I failed, and I, I just couldn't believe that, but um, I still was going to wait for three years for my friend to join me on a second attempt, and I was hopeful that that would uh, turn out to be a more successful venture. So I guess that's the great thing about whatever we attempt to do, even if we don't complete it, obviously we can always try again. Uh, there's always, sometimes there's not always a second chance, but in my case there was, you know, the resources was there, and uh for three years, I could build up my funds. You know, I, I self-financed the trip working, you know, just minimum wage jobs because that's all I was doing at the time. So, um, yeah, I did. I was able to give it a second chance. And a, and a lot of things to think about, there is a second chance. If, if you just keep plugging away and get the right resources and help, you're probably able to make that second chance really count. Before we ever attempt anything major, a lot of planning must go into it. There's a lot of planning, but you don't want to over-plan. I mean, we did have a, an itinerary. Um, my friend's uh, father was a geography professor, so he's very helpful, although we kind of went by our gut feeling and went against his knowledge, and his knowledge was usually turned out to be correct about where the hills <laughs> were, about where the wind was going to be and all that. So, oh, but, boy. You know, we were... You know, we were 21-year-olds. We You, kn- you knew everything. Yeah, we knew everything, so, and he knew nothing. <laughs> so um, we did have that knowledge, though, in the back of our minds. And Ed had, tri- Ed, my friend's one, with, with me. Uh, you know, he had done somewhat of the trip. Their, their families 
very venturesome. And, you know, during the summers, uh, he would travel with his dad and his family uh, to some of these areas we were going to go on. So he had an idea of what we were up against. So you started from what city? I started actually near uh, Pittsburgh. We'll call it Pittsburgh, uh, probably a more familiar landmark there rather than Indiana, which is a town in Pennsylvania. Indiana, Pennsylvania. There's, yeah, a, Indiana. there's a university or a college there, isn't there? There is a college there, yeah. yes, there is. So that's where you started, and five months later, where did you end up? What was the, or what did you end up back in uh, right. Indiana, yeah. Pennsylvania? Yeah, there was uh, there was just thinking there that uh, although the term green didn't come around there or wasn't prevalent at that time, there was thinking I want to start here and go back here without too much motorized assistance, without too much you know high tech help, and. Uh, I wanted just to do a complete circuit and kind of do it on my own. At the time, I didn't have a driver's license. The reason being was that in 74, I saw all these long gas lines, and I saw my dad and was in line with my dad for two or three hours just to get a few gallons of gas to make your car go a few hours, and I got ludicrous. So I, I put off that, and I, you know, my thinking was, you know. Ride you know, a bike. And what's that? It ride a bike, right? It, it ride a bike. It was, you know, it was just. That would just seem the, the thing to do. I mean, the, it looked like that it was only going to get worse. So you leave from Indiana, Pennsylvania, near Pittsburgh, and you go all the way out to the west coast of... Well, we didn't go... We didn't beeline it there, you know, like on I-80. I uh, we had gone up around the lakes. Our uh, Ed's family had gone around Canada, and he suggested that. They've been, it was a very beautiful country, they said, we probably like that. Now that was our plan to go across around up around the lakes and on Trans uh, Canada Highway. Yeah, and and the, there's several versions of the Trans Canada Highway. That just means the highway that goes across Canada. We went, you know, the mo- the lower, the more southern one, I would say. So you went across the continent on on a, a map across southern Canada. Right across southern Canada, yeah, and then and. Uh, through the form, we did face a lot of westerly winds, and uh, we had to deal with that. And not true to form, but, you know, something that just happened. Uh, the dry weather turned to wet weather as we went through Ontario, and uh, so we had to deal with that. And then it got hotter than usual, you know, later on as we were halfway through Canada. We had to deal with that. So, And then we, we entered the states through Idaho. The, the panhandle and uh, entered the states through that, and then we went across you know, Washington, which we found that there was a desert there, believe it or not. There's uh, it's extremely hot there, like deserts do. So we were, we were learning a lot about geography that we didn't realize, but, you know, as Dad probably had told us, but we probably just kicked it aside. Learned a lot about endurance, about, uh, my goodness, Thinking about what you did, I'm thinking about you had somewhat of a feel of what the pioneers back in the 1800s went through, you know, as they crossed the United States and went into areas that weren't populated. I mean, you were you were right out in the weather. You Where did you sleep every night? Uh, well, we wanted to, you know, minimize expenses. That was our plan all right off. I took $1,000 in travel check to uh, get us through the whole length. That was my and he bought $1,000, so 2000 between the two of us. And um, 
We mostly, we bivouac camp. Uh, we didn't use formal campgrounds. We just pulled across, you know, right beside the road under a bridge. Sometimes, with permission, we used a farmer's shed uh, that he wasn't using or a, sometimes a barn, you know. And there's some, you know, picnic areas that roadside rest stops that we kind of took over for the night as well. So we just used whatever we could without paying very much for it. We also took a small stove, and we cooked most of our meals uh, to minimize those expenses as well. So uh, we tried to cut expenses where we could, and and uh, turn, after that became part of the challenge too, sort of a, you know, a lower-level part of the challenge. And probably some mechanical problems along the way, and it, one of your chapters says wreck. <laughs> right. So. There, there was a wreck not too far. My friend was very good at bicycling. Of course, Hilly, Pennsylvania, where we were starting from, he was able to go down these hills, and he felt if he sweated to get up those hills, he was just going to literally pretend those brakes weren't there and go down as fast as he could. But, and, and never wrecked and turned these sharp corners with no problems at all. But it happened to be in, in Canada, you know, not too far, I think within two weeks of the trip start, there was a lot of traffic, as there can be on Trans-Canadian Highway, trucks transversing, going back and forth these old towns and, you know, su- and, uh, supporting their needs. And uh, when these trucks go by, they create a lot of wind. And when trucks are going by at the same time both directions like a whirlpool and he for some reason at that point he couldn't handle it he went off the shoulder in this gravel and tried to go right back on and that's where the bike slid from underneath him now luckily he wasn't cut too bad there was no stitches uh just some abrasion and uh a slightly bent uh, wheel that he could straight we were pretty knowledgeable and he was much more knowledgeable to me about fixing bikes, and then putting wheels together from scratch. So we was able to true those wheels pretty good, but we still needed to get the help of a of a bike shop that was just down the road. And the owner allowed us to use his bike shop, much to my dismay, because I went into this thinking, you know, no one's going to help us. If anything, people are going to uh, cause us problems. And that's one of the things I did learn. And this uh, owner of a sports shop, it had a bike shop as well, and did uh, fishing so it was just a kind of a sports shop, not just a bike shop, but uh, he provided you know us the the room to, uh, to to work on the on the bike. What would you say in just the closing uh, moments here? Uh, what would you say about what you learned the most? What what was the you know the day to day, week to week, and then month to month trip? There had to be some things that just you've never forgotten. Well, there there were a lot of things that I didn't forget, uh, but basically from day to day, and, it, and they were important overall. It's these little things that, uh, these little joys, these little visual joys, uh, um, these little uh, things that the people did to help you. It might have been just a statement. Uh, it might have been just a smile. It, it And the little tricks that you could play with your own mind to get yourself through these little obstacles. Because if you didn't, if you allow these little obstacles to get under your nerves, it, it would just be like a boil that got, got bigger and bigger, and, and pretty soon it would be, you know, incapacitating. So we made sure that, that didn't get in our way. 
And also, as far as my part, my friend had his bike stolen. He was in San Francisco by himself when we were taking a layover with his great, great aunt's house, our apartment. He uh, was touring San Francisco, and he got his bike stolen. He come back and told me the bad news, and I, and I said, I, he wanted me to go back with him. I said, no, I'm not. I said, I, this is another halfway point. I'm not. So I had to go on, and, and that just seemed to work out fine, and I was able to get through that. And and I did some of the bad things I did from the last trip, too, and it's just going too fast, not taking time out to talk to people, and just, and just acting as though it was a race. And I... I Come to a real low point, like just like he had done in Salt Lake City the previous trip, but this time it was clear as Clearwater, Florida. I was having a lot of bad feelings, and it was just I was just about to give it up. But again, another bike shop owner allowed me to use this uh, shop, and I I had some very fragile tires that were getting on my nerves for one thing, besides the hot weather and everything else that I allowed to get on my nerves. And I was able to change those very fragile. I took these racing tires of along on the Tour de France, and I made it that far. Unbelievable. And uh, I changed into more sturdier, standardized, what they're called, clincher tires. And uh, I was able to go there, go back the floor, all the way to the end of the floor, and then come back up to Pennsylvania. So with that little bit of help, I was able to, you know, do that. But again, I, like I said, the, the major take of this story was the little things do count day to day, hour to hour, and the little things that people can do for you are uh, really add up as something that uh, will help one. Doug, how do we get your book? Well, uh, iUniverse has it, and it is on the standardized book list, so I assume it's available at the bookstores or you know other uh, Internet outlets. Well, we want to thank you, Doug, for being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you for having That was Doug Friedlein. He is the author of his book, Summer of 1977, A North American Bicycling Odyssey. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Saturdays on toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk. 
ontoginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen, every Saturday on toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Journey of a Man, Packing Sneakers and a Gun. And the author is Henry Morales, and Henry joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Henry. Hello, good morning. Good to talk to you. Well, this book is your autobiography. Ever since you were six years old, you basically have been in trouble, haven't you? Uh, <laughs> that seems to be the case. You know? Right. You've gone through life with basically a chip on your so- shoulder and asked anybody and everybody to knock it off, and then you took care of the rest. It sounds like that's your story. I evolved into that. Right. I, I was a very troubled youth, uh, took a long time to find myself, having been orphaned at a very early age. In fact, uh, at six years old, when I actually lost my mother, uh, it just started from there. I had, had been a troubled youth. <laughs> Even at that time, I, uh, in, the, in the book refers to fires I started and outcome of that, my falling out of a window and getting a nail stuck in my eye and then having uh, my mother beat me and just push me into a corner and not know how seriously injured I was. So, uh, my uh, stepfather at the time had to come into the house and catch me uh, almost passed out and rush me into the hospital, running every red light and you know, police chasing us from behind and rushing me into the hospital basically saved me. Started off very young, very early, the trouble that is. Well, this is how you introduce your book. Uh, you were asked to, uh, in a sentence or two, to uh, write a statement, and you say this, it is an uncensored book. Told through the eyes of a six-year-old as he grows into manhood, raw and without moral judgment. And then you say it forces the whole society to look in at itself. Yes, quite so. At age uh, six, uh, the uh, welfare uh, department stepped in to take hold of us because uh, my mother got sick and uh, she went to the hospital and we never seen or heard anything from her after that. About I was taken to an uh, orphanage and uh, raised inside the orphanage. And uh, the way I was treated, uh, I'm, a tr- I'm a troubled youth. I'm trying to find some uh, understanding as to why I've been taken away and why the uh, situation is the way it, it, it was you know, for me and my sisters. And then uh, shortly after I was there, my sisters were taken away from me, and uh, I was left alone. And here I'm in confusion, total confusion, trying to understand why things are the way they are and why no one wants me. And uh, I'm thinking that my sisters are in a better situation. And then to find out years later that they've been parceled out to men much older than they were and they (laughs) have been used and abused, each having their first children at 13. And uh, one has six before she's 21. The other one has four and uh, never learned to read and write. And then I'm left in the convent, and from the convent I'm sent to another institution uh, in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, there I'm discarded and thrown into the streets because the people there couldn't handle me because I was acting out. You know, what kind of institutions do we have that 
allow that to happen. There, there was no follow-up and no understanding of the emotional, uh, the lack of emotional development in us. I think it does force the, the system just to look at itself and see what it's doing to people, uh, young people, children. So uh, that's what I'm referring to, say that the society is forced to look in at itself. Well, it's so unfortunate that there are so many today like you, like you went through, that don't have anyone. I mean, what? where was your father? Uh, my father had already left when I was, uh, I think it was two years old or so. But uh, as you will uh, see, and it's, uh, it's revealed in the, in the book, that he came back looking for us time and time again. Uh, my mother was uh, 28 years old when I was born. Uh, my father was 22, and so uh, there was age difference there, you know. But uh, he came uh, to this uh, house uh, of this woman, uh, Oquenda, who I referred to in the book as a Brujaria. But uh, the few times that we were allowed to come from the convent to visit, she would hide us in the basement, telling us that a bad man was coming around, and we had to keep very quiet, and it would be my father. But I was to find out many years later that's who he was. At the time, I had no idea who it was. She would hide us in the basement and tell us that the bad man was coming. And, uh, you know, so I know he was trying to find us. I know he was trying to do what he could in his own way. I don't know his, uh, his educational level. I don't know, uh, you know, what his background was or his situation. But I know he put effort forward. And even at the, uh, at the end of... Uh, like when I came home from uh, having done all this time in prison in 1988, I tried to find out uh, where my mother was buried to find out that uh, he was the one who claimed the body from Kings County Hospital and uh, arranged for the uh, the funeral that she had. You know? So I, I knew he had a lot of love and affection for us. I just don't know why or how things turned out the way they did and how he wasn't able to find us. You know, so... So what were your feelings at the time about your father? I mean, how did this uh, stir within you? What, what were your innermost thoughts? Well, um, I, uh, I never really thought of my father at the time. My mother had a, a male friend, uh, a guy by the name Aniva, and uh, after she passed, I guess I referred to him as more or less as a father figure, but he, uh, he disappeared as as uh, we were taken to the convent, so I never really uh, thought of, of, of a father, or, and not until years later. Uh, I mostly thought about uh, missing my mother, and uh, uh, even in the convent, uh, there's a situation there where I'm finally, uh, uh, I think it's almost a year and a half or so after she's uh, already left us, and um, I'm crying, and I'm in one of the beds, and I'm realizing my loneliness, and uh, one of the sisters, uh, Sister uh, Frances Elizabeth, in the convent comes to me and tells me uh, to cut out the crying. And uh, there's other people in worse situations, and I'm disturbing people. Stop, you know. So I, I'm, at a, I'm, at a, I'm at a loss <laughs> as to, uh, you know, how to think of anything uh, more concrete, you know. Yeah, you were feeling a lot of pain. I'm sure you were feeling, as you say, there was a lot of just uh, fury within you. Yes, there was, uh, but only because I couldn't understand my situation, and uh, I and and I took it out on everybody around me. Uh, it took me a while to adjust to the convent, and I was uh, a kid who was picked on all the time. But it, it it wasn't 
long before I was doing the same to everyone else. And, and, and when I look back at it, I, I did do a number of horrendous things to other kids in there in the convent. In the, in the book, I do apologize. Because it, it was, it, there were some very horrible things, you know, but uh, these things were also done to me. I hope there's uh, understanding there, and, uh, and, and I hope that, if, that the uh, other children who grew up, you know, did not uh, allow themselves to be damaged for life, you know, as I was. These memories always stay with me. Yeah, you said you, you were always blaming everyone for your suffering. Yes, I was, <laughs> but not consciously. It just seemed that everything and everyone was uh, picking on me, but it's because I didn't have any understanding for my situation, and, and no one ever took the time to actually sit me down and, and explain what had actually happened, uh, why things were the way they were. I was just pushed along, pushed along, and told you know, to get over it and, and get along. And so I, I, it was always like a blank part of my life, and I could never figure out <laughs> why things were the way they were. And... Uh, uh, I, I think when I was uh, about 14 years old and I was uh, taken to Botsford um, Avenue, I got a hold of a book called uh, Man, Child, and the Promised Land by uh, Claude Brown. And uh, it was the first time that something in my head clicked because I realized that uh, it wasn't anybody else's fault and that no one was picking on me for me being me, it was just the hand that I was given. It was just my situation. Everyone else was struggling with their situation. And I just had to make do the best I could with the hand I'd been given. You know, so I, I realized I wasn't the only one suffering this way. And uh, it helped me to start to understand uh, my situation. But not only that, how does the, the society as a whole work? And, uh, and how it is that I arrived at my at my state of mind, you know, and, situation. So uh, from there, I began to develop even uh, further understanding, but uh, I became even more radical. <laughs> and uh, I guess the whole society, that is, you know, uh, and uh, uh, the, the culture that would allow institutions to exist as they were. Well, you have a lot, you, you had a lot of rage within you and so it was hard being in, in the institution, but then you ended up in the street. Let me tell you. <laughs> okay, we, we, I'll give you that situation. Uh, when I was in uh, um, St. Vincent, which is after being uh, uh, after having graduated out of the eighth grade in St. Dominic's, the orphanage, they sent me to New York City, uh, St. Vincent's, uh, which is across the street from the House of Detention, downtown Brooklyn. And uh, I was there just for a short time because the uh, I, I just couldn't adjust to the city life and if the whole new surrounding. And uh, having to go to the city to go to school in Harron High School, I believe it was. And uh, it was just gangs, gangs everywhere. And I was always a loner. And so I played hooky and got into trouble uh, stealing a pocketbook and a couple, and hurting a, uh, a, one of the counselors with a dustpan, which I cracked over his head because he had backhanded me and spit my lip, you know. <laughs> And uh, the, the, uh, the director realized that I was out of control, and uh, one day I escaped, uh, I just ran away, and he sent word out to the street through the other uh, boys there that, uh, to tell me to keep running, not to bother coming back. And I was uh, 12 going on 13 at the time, and uh, so I stayed in the streets. And uh, uh, from there, I, just, I, I started associating with uh, 
drug dealers and uh, spent my time in shooting galleries and uh, sleeping on the streets and just just doing the best I could to, to, to just to survive. I remember it was the summertime, so it was a little bit easier. <laughs> so I was able to run the streets and, and uh, grab food off the market on uh, Smith Street, uh, downtown Brooklyn, and eat. And uh, I got to the point where uh, merchants would see me coming, and they would stand out to wait for me to pass before going back into their stores because I would just grab stuff and just just grab stuff and run, you know, and they couldn't catch me and that sort of stuff. So. But uh, when wintertime started coming, I realized there was less and less people in the streets, and now I needed a place to sleep. The benches in the park were not good enough anymore, so I started riding the trains back and forth at night. Sometimes the uh, dope addicts would let me go into the shooting gallery and, and sleep in the corner, providing I bring them milk and, and bread and stuff, uh, because uh, those days the uh, supermarkets would leave their deliveries outside the supermarkets at you know, 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, and uh, you could just walk by and just pick up a case and, and take it, you know. So, uh, that's no longer done, but uh, in those days, uh, that's what they did. And I would take and knock on the doors, and they would let me in because I brought stuff with me. And more or less, they would leave me to myself, but uh, that started me going around because I seen everyone what they were doing, what they were shooting, what they were using. I would collect glassine bags and scrape the powder out and start using it myself. It wasn't long before I was skin-popping myself and, uh, and shooting heroin myself, you know. And, and it was about that time that uh, one of the kids came... Uh, me with a gun that he had taken from uh, his house. I pulled my first armed robbery. I robbed a liquor store, and uh, I got $800 out of it, and I thought all my troubles were over. <laughs> I was rich. <laughs> uh, and that became my mainstay of survival uh, in the streets. I, uh, I became what you call as a, uh, what we know in the streets called a stick-up artist, and, and that was what I... Uh, did for the next 20 years or so of my life, going in and out of jail for armed robberies, bank robberies, and that sort of thing. That's, that's my story. Uh, well, Henry, what turned it around for you? When did you finally decide that this wasn't the life that you wanted to live? I was uh, 37 years old, <laughs> laying in uh, Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary. I had spent almost the last uh, 12 years <laughs> in the system, except for one year, which I was on the run in the middle there, but I just was at the end of it. I couldn't take it anymore. I remembered uh, a, a, a statement that uh, an old man uh, who, I guess he was doing uh, a very long sentence in uh, Elmira, and he once said to me, this is when I was a young kid, uh, maybe 18 years old, he said to me, uh, and a group of us that he was talking to, he said, uh, you guys going to keep coming back to jail until you finally get scared of spending the rest of your life here. Here I was, 37 years old, in Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary, and I had arrived at that point. I did not want to spend the rest of my life in jail. Uh, I knew that there was more out there for me, though I couldn't put a finger on it. But the one thing I knew I could not do was return to armed robberies and that kind of living. I, I just couldn't do it anymore. I remember getting on my knees, not to pray to God as a Christian or someone like this. You know, I... I'm a very spiritual person, and I, I asked the universe to relieve me of the spirit that had been pushing me and pushing me and pushing me to uh, act the way and ex the way I was acting and, and extracting revenge and everything on everybody else around me. I just couldn't do it anymore, and I wanted to be a gentler person. I wanted to be a, a human being. I wanted to join the human family and not just be on the outskirts all the time. It was like a revelation to me. I, uh, 
it was a big load off my shoulders. And uh, about a month later, I went to the parole board and I made the parole and I came home and, and it was like a sunny day. <laughs> and uh, I, I've been trying to walk the straight and narrow since then. And uh, it's like one day at a time, almost like the uh, 12-step program, you know. Right. But uh, it's gotten easier and easier. And now I can, now it's like, I could never imagine going back uh, to the other way of living. You know, so. Well, I can hear it in your voice, Henry. We can all hear it that you you understand, and now you're moving forward, and you feel so badly about all that you inflicted upon others uh, during those years. But at the same time, you hope that they would forgive you, right? I sincerely hope that they would do that. Not only not only them, but the entire society. Since I've come to realize more than anything else, we're all one family. We are, you know, we are a human family. And uh, we, we were on this trip together, this journey together, and uh, we have to uh, take care of each other. So the system itself needs a lot of correcting. It, it, it starts with individuals. We, we have to do what we can. Each individual has to do what they can to try to change things around. The best way they can, you, you, you're probably going to die before it, it happens. Uh, Obama's got his hands full. <laughs> you know? uh, Many have tried, you know, Martin tried, uh, Malcolm tried, uh, Gandhi tried, you know, the list goes on and on. But it does get better little by little, little by little increments, you know, and uh, hopefully we'll arrive at a a place when we all can be one family and uh, the atrocities uh, that we inflict on each other and all all these things will come to an end. And uh, hopefully it'll be sooner than later. Henry, tell us how to get your book. Ah, it's available uh, online at uh, any major bookstore, or you can reach out to iUniverse.com uh, and uh, order it that way, uh, Journey of a Man by Henry Morales, and go get it. <laughs> <laughs> go get it. Well, Henry, we want to thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've uh, been so humble. That was Henry Morales. He is the author of his book, Journey of a Man, Packing Sneakers and a Gun. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. 
Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Vaulted Sky, and the author is Richard Maffa, and Richard joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Richard. Hi. You immediately take us into the violent skies over Africa in a World War II dogfight with the Germans and the Royal Air Force. Who made up the Royal Air Force? Canadians, Americans, Australians uh, all served in, in World War II. And uh, this, this particular story is, it takes place in the Desert Air Force, which uh, was, was in Egypt and, uh, at the time that uh, Rommel and the Africa Corps were uh, moving towards the Suez Canal. So that's the opening air battle. Why write the book? Well, it... it um, my stepfather uh, kind of started the story with a single sentence in a discussion I had with him, among many, um, about his time in uh, the Army Air Force in uh, North Africa and Sicily and Italy. Uh, he had mentioned uh, one evening when we were out in the cold smoking, my mother made him smoke outside, and uh, so I stood out there with him, and uh, he was lighting up his camels, and... and um, I was talking about, a, I think, a little a documentary I had seen and uh, about uh, the desert war in North Africa. And uh, uh, he mentioned that while he was in North Africa with the 52nd Fighter Group, he was a crew chief on Spitfires, actually, American uh, groups flew Spitfires in the Mediterranean. And he mentioned that um, several American pilots uh, transferred in from the... Uh, Royal Air Force, the British Desert Air Force, into his uh, fighter group. And that started the story. Uh, a year or two later after he died, and uh, I, I uh, began to get into some of the history and some of the, uh, the details that I could use to, to put together the story. So uh, that's, that's how it started. And um, what fascinated me was two things. One was, again, he was a crew chief um, on Spitfires. I was not aware that American groups flew Spitfires in North Africa uh, and in the Mediterranean until May of 1944. Uh, and then he became a crew chief on Mustangs when the group switched to uh, Mustangs. And the second thing, again, was I was um, familiar with the history of, of Americans going into the Royal Air Force, in most cases through the Royal Canadian Air Force uh, by enlisting or joining up in Canada. Uh, but uh, most of those American fighter pilots ended up in the Eagle Squadron, which were three American manned squadrons in the Royal Air Force in, in England. They later became, those three groups transferred in as a whole into the Army Air Force and became the fourth fighter group in England. Um, but I wasn't aware that um, uh, some Americans ended up being sent to North Africa into the Desert Air Force at the time that the British were desperately trying to uh, prevent the Germans from uh, getting through uh, to Alexandria and ultimately to the uh, Suez Canal. So that's, uh, that was uh, the main genesis of the story, and, and uh, uh, 
again, my father, my stepfather was Italian American, as I, I am. And um, so the I, I thought the character uh, might have the same background, and, and indeed, uh, here in Columbus, Ohio, where I'm located, Westerville, a suburb of it, um, there's a well-known Italian American, one of the leading aces of the Second World War, Don Gentile. So um, I uh, thought that it would be appropriate to tell a story similar to to his in some ways. Uh, he was uh, born here but uh, enlisted into the Royal Air Force or went through Canada, uh, much, much as my character did, and uh, ended up in England. So uh, I basically created a character who... Um, that's some of my background, and uh, was from New York, which is where I grew up, and uh, got into some aviation activities when I was a, a young man, and uh, built some of that in, into the story and into my character's background. You state that this is a story of men and women who did what had to be done. It's a story of ordinary people, our parents and grandparents, and even our grandparents, to some who rose to Desperate challenges and extraordinary times. Well, yes, I think that's, uh, I suppose that's another way of, of describing uh, the greatest generation. Again, with, with these were people who were, you know, in, in my case, my, my father, stepfather, uncles, uh, my friends' fathers, uh, the vast majority of whom uh, served in one of the branches of the military during the Second World War from Navy, Army, Army Air Force, Marines. Um, so I, you know, I grew up, I'm a, I'm a first, first year baby boomer, so I, I grew up at a time in, in the 50s that, you know, the Second World War was, was very fresh, and um, we sort of took it for granted, well, all these men who were our fathers and uncles and our friends' fathers, uh, and of course, mothers and so forth, and girlfriends, that, well, well they were the people that we knew, and um, occasionally when we were... Uh, not self-absorbed and being children, we, uh, you know, we listened and learned. And, and as we grew older, certainly I, I uh, uh, became more interested in, in the real experiences of of these people as, as human beings. And uh, that's really what what got me into uh, writing about it. And particularly when I uh, uh, served in the Air Force uh, during the Vietnam War, um, I wasn't able to fly because I could not see well enough, but uh, I worked with uh, a bomber squadron uh, here in the United States that, that uh, provided uh, crews and the aircraft for uh, the Vietnam War. And, and then uh, when I learned to fly after I got out, I, I got more and more interested, particularly in the, in the experiences of those who uh, uh, were in the Army Air Force uh, because of the, the background that I had and, and, again, my connection to my stepfather. Well, you put us right in the cockpit, right from the beginning. Is there different uh, scenarios through the book that put us into these dogfights? Yes. I mean, I opened it with, with, with that air battle because, um, again, I wanted to get the, the reader into what it, what it felt like to, to be in that kind of situation. I've done some, some um, flying of, of historic aircraft myself, uh, some, some elemental aerobatics to learn some of, of the maneuvers. And uh, one of the things I wanted to do was, was basically make the reader, you know, feel what, 
what it was like and exactly really what you have to do to and what you feel going through a situation like that. And um, as the character, you know, progresses and, and, and uh, is trained and, and Patrick learns to fly, um, of course, he, he begins to understand, you know, what, what is required in terms of flying to, uh, for your life as opposed to just for, for a job or for, for pleasure. And uh, as, as he moves on into... Uh, particularly when they get to North Africa, it becomes a very a desperate situation in terms of uh, the Germans having superior aircraft and then um, really putting the, the, the Commonwealth pilots, the British and, and others, uh, at a great disadvantage. And at a time when Rommel was uh, really um, making mincemeat out of most of his British opposition. Well, tell us about the main character, about his personality, about what makes him tick. This is Lieutenant Mont Montalto. Uh, how do you pronounce his name? Montalto. Montalto. Uh, actually, the name is, is actually from a village in uh, uh, Calabria, in the southern, uh, the tip of Italy, which is uh, some distance from where my family actually comes from. But uh, uh, my my Italian family uh, also comes from southern Italy, Abruzzi, uh, as opposed to Calabria, but. Um, this character is someone who, and again, something like myself, who, for whatever reason, um, as a young child, four or five years old, I remember being fascinated by aircraft. And the very first books I got out of the library were airplane books. Um, and uh, no particular uh, reason I could identify other than my mother was always interested in flying, apparently, I learned later. And so this, this character is driven by initially just the boyhood fascination of, of what was then the golden age of flight because the, the initial parts of the book after the opening battle flash back to his boyhood in, in New York, Depression era New York. And um, uh, just uh, seeing the air, aircraft flying over uh, town Again, based on my experiences, I remember being in the schoolyard and watching uh, aircraft navigate towards some of the airports around New York City. And, and uh, at the time, um, much of the navigation was, was so visual. Um, and we had large numbers on one of the nearby roofs, which were a uh, roof which was a checkpoint for pilots. And so the character I created has, you know, gets that fascination with, with aircraft and uh, and having a um, uh, great interest in, in his history myself, uh, again, I must admit I gave the character that kind of interest in, in you know, what happened in the past. And um, being from a family that uh, were myself and my brother, the first generation to go to college, uh, I wanted to create a character that whose family wanted something more of him, you know, in terms of, of bettering uh, himself, uh, being more than they were able to achieve. So the family's dream and his dream is to go to college. Um, and uh, what happens, of course, is that the approaching Second World War puts another dream uh, in his lap, if you will. Now, there must be a good romance story in this action-packed thriller. Yeah, yes, there is, um, uh, aside from the... Romances of, of, of a young man growing up. Uh, when the character uh, Patrick, 
gets to North Africa after weeks of flying in the desert. They, they had his first leave in um, Cairo. Uh, Cairo at the time was the, one of the description was the city of gold. You could get about anything in Cairo. Uh, and interestingly, although this the, the war was taking place in the western desert, not far from the Nile Valley, uh, Egypt was not at war. A British protectorate, it was actually a neutral country hosting someone else's war. And so Cairo was, was a fascinating place full of expatriates from, from various European countries waiting for uh, the, the conclusion or, or the resolution of, of, of the war that put them there. And um, Patrick, uh, in, in, on his leave, uh, meets a, an Englishwoman, Margot McKinnick, who uh, is married to a British officer who is in the desert, the Desert Army, the uh, Eighth Army. And um, they initially develop a, what would be a platonic friendship. Uh, she's married. He's still very much... Uh, uh, a product of his Catholic upbringing and, and uh, the idea of, of romancing a, a married woman uh, is not something that, that he easily adapts to. So uh, their initial meeting is basically uh, breakfast and friendship uh, while his, his uh, squadron commander uh, actually gets more deeply involved with Margot's roommate, how that romance begins. Now, he also meets along the way the German ace that ha he has a run-in with at the beginning of the book. Yes. Uh, when he, uh, at an opening air battle, he is shot down uh, after downing two German planes and saving his own wingman. He is shot down by a, a German expert, uh, which is the German word for ace, uh, Hans Joachim Marseille, uh, a French last name, but his father, grandfather, had moved to Germany uh, decades before, and uh, he was known as the Star of Africa. He's a real character. And um, he... Uh, now, was, was this Hans, uh, is this a true character right out of history? Yes, Hans, Hans Joachim Marseille is, is a real character. He, uh, uh, that was his, his, his title, if you will, the Germans gave him the Star of Africa. He ended up with 158 killed. Uh, aircraft down in one day, <clears throat> known for shooting down 17 British planes in one day. Um, so he was much feared, much respected, um, a superb pilot. Uh, when Patrick is shot down, he actually uh, uh, is about to be shipped off from the Italians that initially captured him to the uh, German Luftwaffe, who had control of all Allied airmen, prisoners. And uh, Marseille... Oberleutnant Marseille actually uh, comes to see Patrick in the Italian camp simply because uh, he uh, respects him. He had he had uh, a great skill, and it was some difficulty that uh, Marseille was managed to shoot Patrick down. So, yes, he does, he meets him and has a very interesting uh, conversation and, and discussion uh, with with the German. And of course, in the story, we have a an escape, and also he gets back in the air and and has repeated sorties over Africa, and it's filled with with all the the trials of war and the excitement. One of the things I tried to convey is, is just the great cost in terms of 
uh, lives and, and damage to these, these men and women. Um, you know, he loses many friends. Um, <clears throat> his, the woman he meets ultimately loses her husband. Um, and, uh, you know, he um, basically is, is at a point where the book concludes where he participates in what was the climatic battle, the climactic battle of the Desert War in Egypt, which was the Battle of El Alamein. And then he then is, is basically transferring to the U.S. Army Air Force, which is uh, really how, you know, I got into the story because um, American pilots who were still in the British Desert Air Force at the time were all encouraged, although they could not be forced to, uh, uh, transfer into the Army Air Force that was just uh, moving into uh, North Africa in 1942. Well, Richard, tell us how to get your book. Well, the book is available. Uh, I have my website up, which is uh, www.thevaultedsky.com, and uh, that's where it is initially available. Um, of course, I will uh, have locally on sell some books directly myself, and uh, uh, in the near future, the book will be available. On, but the website is up, and that is the place to order uh, the book uh, at this time. Richard, we want to thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. Well, you're welcome. I'm glad to talk to you. That was Richard Maffa. He is the author of his book, The Vaulted Sky. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.